Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Alan Herrera. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing okay so far. <laughs> I hope you feel even better in a little bit because I, you've been, your work has been, I've only come across it recently, but it's been very inspirational. So I'm, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read a bit from your About Me on your page and then say how- okay. I didn't write any of this, of course. So yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll try to keep it brief. And then I'll say how I I heard of you and your work and then get into asking you about it. So uh, your professor practice at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and now there's some, I believe, Welsh. I'm not going to try to pronounce this. Can you say it? No, no, don't don't, don't bother. Just leave it at what you said. It's enough. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What brought me to you is that you're the founder and chairman of the Tyrona Heritage Trust, That's right. working to amplify the voice of the Kogi people in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Colombia. Uh, and you've worked before that, and, and, and still you make historical do- documentaries, mainly, mainly for the BBC, mainly on history. And from 1995, you worked with Terry Jones of Monty Python, which huge for me. And I have to ask about that, even though I want to focus on the Kogi. And now you work on history, anthropolo- anthropology, working with UNESCO, uh, so I want to say what brought me to you was that long-time listeners of my podcast and readers of my blog know that I've taken, a, I guess I first heard about the San, the Kung in Southern Africa, and I had James Sussman as a guest who lived among them for decades and still does. And then I heard about the Hadza and I had on the podcast, Bill Benenson and become friends with him and his wife. Uh, they did a movie called Last of the First. Then... I just had Michael Gervin, who lived among the uh, Tsumane in Bogota, I believe. I'm sorry, in um, Bolivia. And the Ache. And then, so Bill wrote me that he met the Kogi, and I'd never heard of them. So I started looking them up, and I found your movies. One of them relatively recent, one of them from 1990. And it also happened to come at a time for me I look, people keep describing me as extreme because I'm trying to live more sustainably and more than most people. I haven't flown since 2016. In particular right now, my apartment is off the grid and I gave myself a challenge. Could I do it for one month? Wondering if I could make it more than a day or two. I mean, I I literally, I I went to my circuit and I'm, I'm physically disconnected from the electrical grid and I look at them as role models. People say what, I'm, what people describe as extreme to me feels traditional. And the more that I learn of people who are living without power grids, the more I feel like we have to learn from them. And so I saw what you did as inspirational, of course, a guidance, role models, and people. So I could go on about that, but that's what brought me to you. And it came at a, a very good time because I'm seeing people living and I'm like, okay, what can I learn from them? How can I be like all of us used to be not too long ago? And I don't want to say all of us were like, just like one type, but all of us were not using electrical power a little while ago. All of, all of us were not polluting a little while ago. And they've lived there for, all right. So maybe you can tell me how you and they got in touch and as I understand, they were living away from, they'd retreated from the Spanish hundreds of years ago. They withdrew from the Spanish, absolutely. Um, the Spanish attacked the culture that was there called Tyrona, 
the Spanish called them Tyrona, um, at about 1600, um, and tried to destroy them, tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. They failed, um, and the remnant of the culture moved up the mountain. It's a very steep, difficult mountain, and the Spanish ended up being a lot more interested in places where there was a lot of gold to be had. And it was just an impossible task to try and conquer this territory. So the Kogi, the various groups that formed out of the shattering of Tarona culture, of which the Kogi were one, were pretty much left alone for quite a long time. And uh, they restructured their culture um, without its um, political side. So originally it had chieftains, and they were capable of effectively making war on the Spanish. Now all that disappeared. It became a very frightened culture, very withdrawn culture. Um, and they abandoned chunks of their own culture as the Spanish gradually, slowly returned to the area in order to avoid attracting hostility. So, for example, they stopped making images. The children have no toys. They have no plastic arts because all that invited accusations of devil worship. So they're not the same culture that was there originally, but intellectually, I think they are. I first got in touch with them when I was making a film series for the BBC and Spanish television about the Armada of 1588. And uh, one of the motivations for Philip trying to conquer England was that uh, people like Francis Drake were raiding his treasure ships and destroying the Spanish economy. So he was trying to protect the gold that was being looted from America um, by getting rid of the pirates. And to illustrate that, I went to Bogota to the Gold Museum to see what this stuff was. And while I was there, the BBC said, oh, we've just heard about an archaeological site in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in the north of Colombia called The Lost City. And we want to know if it's worth making a television program about it. Can you go and check it out? So I went on the way. I visited the most senior anthropologist working in Colombia at the time. Uh, and that was how I learned about the existence of the Kogi, who I'd never heard of. And that was how I found myself um, going to ask questions about a destroyed archaeological city, you know, Machu Picchu type thing, from people who were still living in just such a city, which was the big shock, that this culture had survived and was still there and was still functioning and was still living the life of a pre-Columbian civilization, speaking the language and pursuing the philosophical structures and teaching children how to be sages uh, of a world that I honestly thought had disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, and they, when I met them first, thought that they were probably the last survivors and that there were no other real indigenous people left in the world. And they, they were just hidden, clinging on. Um, the reason that they had decided to let me in and speak to me, because obviously part of the business of hiding is you don't let other people turn up. So when people went to their communities, they would always find them deserted. 
Um, one German anthropologist did stay around long enough to find that there were people there, but then they locked her up for two months. Um, so there was, you know, no, and, and another anthropologist who was a friend of mine, um, had been up there and said, I want to make a film about you. And they walked him for two days down the mountain with somebody walking behind, banging him on the head with a stick. So there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm for visitors, but they had in the meantime, come to the conclusion that they couldn't carry on with their reason for surviving. Their reason for surviving, the reason they clung with such difficulty to uh, protecting themselves, was because they believe that they are the guardians of the territory. And this territory is the heart of the world. And that if it is not kept healthy, the world itself would die. And the knowledge of how to take care of the heart of the world, how to repair the harm done there, was fundamental. They see the mountain as a mirror, a microcosm of the whole planet. And in a sense, they're right, because this being the highest coastal mountain in the world, it has virtually every ecosystem on the planet reflected there. So one of the things they did with me was to work out which part of the mountain corresponds to my home in England. And we found a place which, ah, that's it, that's your place. So this is a model of the world, which it's their duty to protect. But they'd come to the conclusion that the amount of damage we cause is so extensive that it's no longer possible to look after the world. And they thought uh, that this meant they had to warn us. They had to tell us what harm we're doing. And uh, the function of letting me in was not to let me find out about how the lost city functioned. It was for them to use me as a channel to communicate with my people and warn them. And I introduced them to the idea of television, which they didn't know about. I took a video camera and showed them. I said, I have this machine, which is an eye that remembers and an ear that remembers. And it will be as though people have come to the door of your house, but they're not there. They can see you, they can hear you, but you don't have to have them. Do you think that's the way to do this? And they became suspicious, very interestingly suspicious. I was interrogated most carefully about how what is filmed is controlled. How do we know that this will be the truth? Who will decide what is seen and in what order? Now, these are people who've never seen television, make no images, mm -hmm. but these are proper questions. In fact, they took me to film school. And they also had long discussions about what is the experience. If, if I bring the camera and my audience sees the Kogi, a Kogi speaking to them, they hear him speaking is that a meeting experience or is it something else is it actually a human interaction or is it something different and if it's different what is it so these were really serious fundamental questions about filmmaking which were thrilling to me and we had long discussions about that and at the end i said look if you have to decide i'll give you the arguments why you shouldn't do this and I did, about the threat that it would bring of invasion, of tourism, of mass interest, people wanting to connect with them. 
and of their culture being overrun. Uh, and I said, that, and there are reasons I imagine why you do want to do this, which is why you're talking to me. And I don't properly understand those reasons, but you do. So you have to decide what to do. And if you tell me after deciding that I should go away, you'll never see me again. Uh, and that was an interesting experience. <laughs> um, and they made the decision. And out of that came the film. And that would be mid late eighties at the, what you're talking about. That was uh, 89, 90. I want to, there's a whole lot to ask about. I, I've heard you describe the language to others and I mean, you mentioned the language and philosophy and the, the difference in it, it seemed very tightly interwoven Yes. that like when you say they warn that the, the world may die, I think that has a different meaning than if I just walking around New York in a regular day, if someone says the world might die, I think, Oh, well, you're anthropomorphizing something. It doesn't really make sense. And, and, but then you talked about how they things aren't, like they don't have to think the, the the language. Maybe you could could you share about that? Firstly, they don't. As far as I can see, their language doesn't have nouns in it, so they don't actually have specific words for specific objects in the way we do. Um, the words uh, they understand the world as constructed of ideas, and the material world is a reflection of the ideas that underlie it. So the world was created in thought and then became real. And the process of becoming real is also a process of the sun appearing, light appearing, the world becomes solid. Uh, but their, I, their words for things that to us are disconnected can be the same word. And the same word can mean a lot of different things because they don't use nouns in the same way. So the same word, for example, uh, will mean a bag, a cooking pot, uh, and a womb. You see the ideas that lie behind this. Mm -hmm. It is a container of something to do with life and health and so on. Um, the, but you don't need separate words for these different things. What you're talking about is the idea behind it, not the thing itself. Uh, and... Other words, um, there's one moment, extraordinary moment, when a Kogi stage, and mom, they're called mamas. Mama means the sun. So they're enlightened or enlighteners. And uh, he, he says to me, uh, why do we have a word for water? Why do we have a word for earth? Where do these ideas come from? Where do these words come from? And then starts to get into the fact that the words behind the word is an idea. And the earth and water are simply material reflections of an underlying idea. So these are, you know, they're not fools, these people. They're not simple people. They are immensely sophisticated intellectually. But his words for water and earth go far beyond those words. So water is also spirit. And is also thought and the creation waters of the universe. All these ideas actually exist in our culture, but kind of buried. I mean, if you read the beginning of the book of Genesis, the world is created out of ideas and water. The separation of the firmament above from the firmament below. They tell the same story. 
and their word for earth was also simply the word for material reality, for what is physical. So one way of interpreting that question is, why do we have a word for physical reality? Why do we have a word for ideas and thought? Um, and that is also, why do we have a word for earth and why do we have a word for water? Linguistically, it, their philosophy is contained in the language they speak. Yeah, I'm really glad I asked. Now my mind is, is like really ra- not racing, but when you said, how do we look from their perspective? Why do you have, why are you separating? Like, why would we separate womb from bowl? If they, like, from their perspective, I mean, I, I know in principle, I, I don't know, the way you said it made me think much more concretely about why we're separating things that don't need to be separated. We're separating things is the difference between the way we think and the way they think. Yeah. I gave a lecture a couple of years ago at the university setting out the proposition that edges are the basis of our understanding of the world. We understand the world as made of things with edges. And actually, the harder you look for those edges, the less able you are to find them. Mm-hmm. Does a river have edges? Does a mountain have edges? Does the world, is the world actually full of things which can be separated from each other in that way? We find it useful to think and speak in those terms. The Kogi don't find it meaningful because they don't experience a world that is made of edges. So separations between things and therefore the notion of a thing is for them really quite difficult to grasp. You talked about their sophistication, and I think it's, I, I can point to myself, and I think I'm losing this to some degree, that we look at others and we think they're so simple. And, you know, there's, a, I don't know if you've read this recent book, um, uh, The Dawn of Everything, where it, it talks about, it's by an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and they talk about, this part is about when European colonists were in, in North America, and they met the Native Americans who actually were practicing democracy. And... Europe didn't have democracy at the time, or very little if it did. And certainly the conquistadors, and well, I guess this would be the, the British explorers, they came over and French. They were explorers. They're, you know, they're out to find gold. They're not like um, sophisticated themselves. And they're just blown out of the water by people who, for their natural structure of, of I don't know, political structure, if that's the right word, they're constantly having to debate and figure out how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And they're very skilled orators and at understanding and listening. And there's a scene in Aluna, I think. Yeah. Where you bring them to an astronomer, Caltech trained astronomer. And I, I'm going to play my hand here. It's like, he looked so like not foolish, but like out of touch. Like I'm sure he's an expert, and, you know, my degree is in astrophysics. So like I looked through telescopes and, and it's, he was like, I want to see if they can understand what, what like the, the, the amazing thing that I have here that they can't possibly understand. Cause I'm like advanced. And I'm thinking the world is crumbling around you and you're taking all of this knowledge and applying it to like looking at these little galaxies. Great. That's very fascinating. And I won't take any, anything away from someone who wants to learn about those things, but understanding how our, we connect with our world and stopping ourselves from polluting it. And that's what they're doing. That, that's what they've figured out, I think, as a culture. And we have not. 
Yeah. And for him to feel sophisticated and it looked to me like not superior, but like more urbane or something when actually he just knew this one little thing. And well, he was playing, he was playing a very interesting game. I hadn't expected the, that discussion to go the way he planned it and did it. And I talked to him at length afterwards about why he had done what he did. And what had happened was the, the invention of the telescope is seen in our society as having completely changed our culture. Because up to that point, human beings believed that they understood the world and the cosmos through their senses. So everything that comes to you, that's how you know truth. And suddenly this telescope appears. And looking through the telescope, you can see that your senses have betrayed you. There are things out there that your senses didn't reveal and the telescope does. So you can't rely on your body as a source of information. This introduces science in a new way, Mm -hmm. transforms us. That is what a lot of people have believed in the 20th century. So he wanted to meet these pre-scientific people. Who had never had the experience of being shown there are things you cannot know because your body doesn't tell you them. And here, let me show them to you. And to see whether what effect that would have on them. And the thing that was such a blocker in that conversation was that the coggy looks at this and says, oh, yeah, we know all about that. Uh-huh. And tells him about it and tells him what deep space is and tells him what the darkness of deep space is and says yes that one which you're saying is a galaxy is actually a star but it's a star which is not visible from earth and he says that's true he knows (laughs) and it's very funny conversation and what this is is that the i didn't want to get into what how that works because it's very difficult for us to cope with it, but the Coggy's sources of knowledge about the world are not only their senses. The Coggy's sources of knowledge about the world, are they believe that the world is made of thought and they themselves have a thinking capacity. And the way their sages operate is by linking their consciousness to the consciousness of the world. They understand the physical planet, the mountain on which they live, as a living, thinking being. And they enter into a relationship with it. And most of what they say they know, they derive from dialogue with the mountain itself. And all their work is based on conducting these dialogues, which are conducted in water. Oh, that's the dropping the uh, with the bubbles. That's right. So I just referred to people haven't seen the movie yet. Yes. And there's this very sequence in the film where they can't understand that I can't do this. And it bewilders them. And I say, I don't know any of this. I don't understand it. I don't know what you're doing. And they find that very difficult to grasp. But I don't have the capacity to read and listen to the bubbles in the water. And there's another scene with another scientist where he's like 
things go downstream. So I can see how if you do something upstream, it'll affect things downstream. And it, 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 it comes out that they're trying to explain how things happening downstream are affecting the mountain. That's right. Do they go upstream? <laughs> there is an upstream effect of things you do at the bottom. Yeah. And to them, it's like, it couldn't be more obvious, like that because these things are, are not disconnected. They are like to think that they would be disconnected. Probably, I'm venturing now guessing, but I, I would guess from their perspective to, to suppose that it only goes in one direction, to suppose that they're disconnected wouldn't make any sense to them. Absolutely. It makes no sense at all. They can't understand. And they know also that we know enough to know that it makes no sense. I mean, they have given me lectures on the water cycle and they know about the water cycle. And they know we know about the water cycle, although they know about it in far more detail than we do. So the coggy, when they're talking about how the water that should be evaporating from the bottom rises up as clouds and is deposited again at the top of the mountain. This is part of this cycle of activity, completely intact. Um, they also know where the cloud at the top has come from down below. So they, can act, they, they actually perceive the process by which it's not generic, it's not general, it's, oh, those are clouds of some sort and they've come from this whole wide area of water. No. That cloud has come from this area of water, quite specific. And if you damage this area of water, that cloud won't be there. So then they have much more extensive scientific knowledge, and they talk about it as scientific, which is derived from long centuries of observation. After all, our scientific observations don't normally go back further than 100 years. Theirs go back centuries, and they keep the memory of it. And we keep overriding memories of, of ours. Yes. There's, I, I want to ask, I want to go in a lot of different directions. One of the, I'm going to keep asking about scenes in the movie. There's, um, there's scenes where you'll, you show this beautiful nature and then you'll pan across and there's a coal plant. Yes. And these brutal, I mean, to me, it's just like coal plants are pretty ugly to me in the first place, generally. Or, you know, here, you know, not far from New York City, sometimes we're driving somewhere and, and we'll pass by a refining plant, an oil refining plant. And it's, it's an eyesore enough from here. But from there, it's just, how do I put it? It's like a, a pockmark on the face of the earth. And I'm sure that was, was that intentional? I mean, did, did, did the world start looking differently to you? Um. It... <laughs> <laughs> it became impossible not to look differently to me. Yes, yes. Uh, but also because I could actually see the changes. I mean, going back to the same places over 30 years and you see what the cause, what results from these places. So that when I first went to that coast, this is the Caribbean coast of the mountain because it rises straight out of the Caribbean. That coast, when I first went there in 1990, was actually still a virgin coast. It was pure sand, clean, with forest coming down to the shore. Uh, you go there now, there are the luxury hotels that weren't there before, but if you lie down on the beach and then go back and have a shower, your shower fills up with coal dust because the coal dust from the shipping that's moving backwards and forwards along that coast, bringing stuff from the coal mines, feeding the power station, spills. And the beach is now dense in coal dust. 
And this is part of the process of killing the world, which is on such a crude level that even us, we can understand it. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of people, you know, they feel like, oh, I got to go see the Kogi before they're gone. And to me, I got to stop buying coal. I mean, that's... That you, you've gone off grid. You've do, <laughs> you, you have made your gesture. It's an experiment. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, well, terrific. And, and coal is going out of date, thank God. But um, the going to visit the Kogi is... Um, obviously, the Kogi don't want you to do that. They want to protect their land and their territory. Um, they... Uh, what they are working towards is developing a process of teaching. So um, I've been working with them for some years on this notion we need to set up somewhere where people can come and learn because that's part of the business of teaching us how not to destroy the earth. So the project that I'm running them, running with them now, which is um, a three-year project to restore as a demonstration uh, some damaged territory at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, it's called Munikan Masha, Restoring Water in the Sierra Nevada to Santa Marta. And one part of that is to construct a teaching center. So you need to insulate those who come from the rest of the Koki, otherwise you do enormous harm. Um, and one of the important features of Koki understanding and thought is their language. And their language involves a particular way of thinking. I personally think that every time a Kogi learns to communicate with us, learns Spanish, it makes it harder and harder and in the end impossible for them to continue with, the, with their own way of thinking. Spanish contains, and our language contains, a way of thinking and seeing about the world, as I'm talking about edges. It, it has nouns. It shapes your understanding of what's in front of you. And uh, one of the big dangers for a culture like that is that if they learn our language, can they really hold on to their own vision of how things work? Yeah, I saw them. They spoke at Google. And I'm thinking, and Google's all patting themselves on the back of like, we make maps and we can, and I'm like, oh man, you guys just want to get your mitts into everything. Mm-hmm. And I know that like everything in Google, I, I can't be sure, but I, I suspect that they're like, how can we get into like our tendrils into there? And they're thinking we want to get all that information out so that people can learn from them more quickly or more, we want to make it more easy, but they don't realize that they're, they're doing what you said. Is it the it's not going to be passive. It's going to be active. I mean, they're almost yeah. like they're going to be missionaries from Silicon Valley as opposed to missionaries from the Vatican. Yes. Yes. They're not particularly different, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, 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 uh, the Kogi have their own maps. The Tyrona had their own maps. Um, in the first film, there's a chunk on a thing that I talk about as the map stone which sits at the entrance to the lost city and nobody could understand what it was because it doesn't correspond to anything physical, but then it's not a map of something physical. Um, it's a map of the relationships on the mountain. 
And so what we map and what they map are completely different things. And the purpose of our maps is different from the purpose of their maps. Our maps have two fundamental purposes. The first one is to take possession. That is a primary object of a map, mm-hmm. is to define how you can take possession. And the second is to move you easily from one place to another uh, in a place that you don't know and have no connection with. And the Kogi perspective on that one is, if you don't know it and you have no connection with, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, when they were, the scenes were there. And, I mean, you guys are walking all over the place and they'd say like, oh, there used to be something here or there used to be something there. And their connections seemed really um, like they weren't recalling a visit from a postcard. They were like, it was, it, it felt more like I might say part of my, I might point to part of my body and exactly now I'm, I'm conscious of it, like part of my body. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And their, their way of taking care of the land, I describe and have been describing for the last few years as a sort of earth acupuncture. It's the, the, the land itself is a body and each point on it has a specific significance in relation to other places it's connecting to it. So what you do at one place and an interference you make at one place can have an effect somewhere else, but it's very specific. And this is how they work on taking care of the land. Their connection with the land, there's, this, there's another scene where in, in Aluna where they're going to fly. They have to have shoes to go on the plane. Yes. And there was something, there were two things that struck me. One was that they were very calm about it. It seemed like they were very matter of fact, like, oh, I guess I'm here. I got to get shoes. But there was also the disconnect from the earth, which seemed like an, an indignity that they weathered. It looked to me like it was this terrible indignity, but they were just like, they took it in stride. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, One of the features of working with the Kogi is the Kogi will never allow themselves to be surprised. They will never allow you the power over them that surprising them gives you. So they will always be po-faced. They will always contain whatever it is they're thinking and feeling about this new experience within themselves. They are never an open people. They are closed, private, shut down. Um, and, uh, the, of course, the symbolic significance of having, not wearing shoes is it keeps you in touch with the earth, having to wear shoes to go on an aeroplane. Well, what are you doing going on an aeroplane? You're being taken away from contact with the earth. Mm-hmm. You're being separated. And this is another feature of our culture is that we think in terms of things that we can do for which we don't need the planet. Uh, and uh, the uh, the solutions that we tend to come up with for the technological solutions for the mess that we're making of the world are actually ways of behaving as though the world didn't exist and replacing it with something that we have invented instead. The ultimate sign of that, I suppose, is Jeff Bezos's aim to move humanity onto another planet, as though the Earth isn't part of us. Have, the Kogi have no, no way of thinking about the Earth, except that it and they are part of the same thing. 
we are in a symbiotic relationship with the planet that we live in. Did you get a sense of how they felt when they put on the shoes and disconnected from the earth? Or did that already happen just walking on concrete? Um, they had enough connection with us by that stage. I mean, that film was made in 2010, okay. 12, to know about shoes. Um, so it wasn't a, a new introduction to them. There's, um, I'm curious about your interaction that there's a scene, I think in the first movie where you cross that bridge yeah. to enter their territory. And I, I think I remember you talking in another interview about how they staged that. They, they figured out how to start it. That's right. And then Aluna ends with you in the water laughing. And it looks like a belly laugh, like really honest. Like, um, oh, yes, it is honest because I didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah, and they're, they're naked in the water and you're naked in the water, I guess. They took over. They watched the film. I took them the cut of the film. And they looked at my cut of the film and they said, it's all very good. It's terrific. It's, but it's not finished. And I said, what do you mean it's not finished? Well, it ends. Um, it ended at an earlier point in the film where everything, you see a landscape which is completely destroyed. They said it's a steady progression from worse to worse to worse to worse and ending with complete destruction. So the message that everybody will take from the film is the world is being destroyed. Now, if we thought the world was really being destroyed, we wouldn't bother doing any of this. Why would we? No, the point of this is to show that the world can be brought back to life, that everything can be made good. So we need Bring back the film crew, and we will take over. And they did. Pretty expensive operation, I have to say. <laughs> and they said, what's going to happen is that at the end of the film, the Kogi Mama and the British Mama mm -hmm. are going to be bathing together in the river and be cleansed. and. Don't worry, everybody will be fully dressed, no problem. They light their heads off. <laughs> <laughs> so I was completely shocked by what actually happened when suddenly everybody strips off and gets into the water. And, of course, the coggy women are gathered around watching and are giggling like mad, apart from anything else. They think I'm going to fall in, which I thought so too. <laughs> and, and the whole thing came as a complete shock to me, and that's what you see at the end of the film. <laughs> Um, they, and it's quite a good sequence cinematically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just as the other sequence you talked about with the bridge is a clever sequence cinematically. And I was completely bowled over by that one because I'd said, I want us to film uh, the opening through the great gate you have up at that town that I know about. And we should go in through that great big gate, like a sort of Tibetan gateway at the end of an avenue of trees. And they said, no, 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 we can't do that. Two reasons. Firstly, we don't want people to know it's there. But secondly, it says the wrong thing. Because what it says is that your world and ours are on the same level and you can just walk across from one to the other. What we want to say is there's a ravine between us. And if you're going to come, you have to cross this great gap between your world and ours. Now, these are people who've never seen a film, who have no visual arts, who have had no concept of a picture. 
and they come up with a visual sequence which works perfectly, brilliantly as a visual sequence, which is better than I would have done, certainly. So this is the power of human thought, is what you're seeing. And an innocence of, innocence is, I mean, there's innocence, but not unsophistication. Uh, they're not plain or, or unworldly. It's the opposite. It's Yes. And how much, I'm curious how it's changed you. A couple of questions. How much has it changed you in your life? And has it affected people around you? And then how much of what you're sharing now is like, are, are you trying, are you sharing a message of your own? I mean, I presume you're, you're trying to convey their message, but it's, it's all, it seems also part of you now too. How much of it is you speaking your heart or through them speaking, having them speak through you? Is there a distinction? Maybe I'm looking for an edge that isn't there. Oh, there's a distinction. The reason that there's a distinction is that I do not share their optimism. I do not share their confidence that the world can be saved. I am very dubious about all this stuff. But I don't have the right to replace what they're trying to communicate with what I think. They know more than I do. I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm there to help them. So I'm doing what I can. If you were to listen to me talking about my understanding of things, it wouldn't be interesting, nor would it be helpful. Um, uh, put it another way, you've heard of Pascal's wager. That might as well believe in God, because if I don't, then... Uh, because the downside, if you've got it wrong, uh, isn't as great as the upside, if you've got it right. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, a reasonable approach to take towards what the Coggy is saying. The uh, we don't dare not believe them. There is no upside in not believing them. And if they're right, maybe we can actually save things. I'm going to also, you know, something for me that's really big, and one of the reasons why I'm, the, the amount of less energy or pollution that I'm causing, the energy that I'm using or pollution I'm causing on an individual level is very little. But one of the important things is that I think I've been asking people a lot lately, can you imagine a world without pollution? Can you imagine a world in which no one, not one single person pollutes? And some people are smart alecky and they're like, well, I exhale and I poop and, you know, okay, things around before humans were around don't count. And a lot of people simply can't imagine it. And the Kogi give an example of not only, it should be impossible by what most people think today, but it's not impossible. It's not only possible. They look pretty happy. I mean, it's not like they're, they look like they have a culture that, where happiness is attainable. They have a culture that works for them. I don't know how happy they are. I'm not sure that they're happier than us. I'd also be careful about this uh, pollution business. I mean, the Kogi depend totally on burning wood. And burning wood isn't a great and healthy thing to do. Um, there's, uh, they have cooking fires inside their houses. The, uh, what's the, the, the smoke from the cooking fires is not tremendously healthy. So I'm not sure that they don't actually cause any pollution, but they have a more comfortable life than we do. Um, this is the thing that took me most by surprise when I first went there. But I thought that the reason we live the way we do was because it's easier and more comfortable and makes us happier. 
And after about a week of living with the Kogi, I realized that I was more comfortable uh, and enjoying my own body much more than I ever did living where I live. I was breathing for the first time in my life air that was good to breathe. I was drinking water that was good to drink. I was, um, while I, I couldn't read the water, I could sense the environment around me with a level of delicacy that I had never experienced before. So that everything that was going on around me made coherent sense and fitted together in a way that was completely new to me. I had no experience of this before. So being in a place and feeling it and knowing it, suddenly I knew a lot of place and a lot of things going on all around me because they're all communicated and all connected. And I'd never had that sense before and I wasn't looking for it. It just came to me. That's interesting. And when I come back from their world, the sense of loss is pretty strong. You asked about what's changed me. Mm-hmm. That, more than anything else, is I know what's missing. And what's missing is that I have to shut down my senses. To live here, it's intolerable otherwise. Uh, if I understand you right, in order to live in London, you have to shut down your senses in order to tune out so many things that when you're there... In order to tolerate the quality of the air, the quality, the noise around me, the discomfort of the chair that I'm sitting on, I have to ignore it. Chairs are not as comfortable <laughs> as more natural ways of sitting and lying and standing. Uh, but I have to shut down my senses so that I can get on with stuff and not experience all this unpleasantness. In a similar way, how can I put it? We have white light, as we all know, is not actually white. It contains all the colors, the whole spectrum. But when we look at all that color flooding into us, we blank it and turn it into a blank nothing, which we call white, because we can't tolerate that degree of stimulation that all that light would otherwise provide. And it's the same with everything else that I'm experiencing. I have to shut it all down and not experience it in order to be able to get on with life. I mean, if I think about how do I feel at this moment, sitting on this chair, sitting in this room, with the noise, the subtle, quiet noises going on all around me, but they're not good noises. It's not good and it's not comfortable. And the Kogi taught me what it can be. Not deliberately. The other thing, of course, is that they taught me how to think, which does. That, 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 that is bad news. It's like being taught to appreciate good wine. It ruins your taste for the bad stuff. A few minutes ago, I said they show that what we believe would to be impossible, that they can live and be happy or have a culture that promote happiness. How can I say that more effectively? Because you said more comfortable, but it's also more sensory, more in touch, more... It's more aware. That's the thing, as far as I can see. They are aware of what goes on in, in their own environments. They're sensitive to it. 
They feel it. They empathize with the world around them. We don't. In fact, we try very hard not to. We don't mind making the world suffer because we don't feel that suffering. They do all the time. I'm not sure it makes them happy. I think uh, uh, sometimes they're, they're pretty gloomy. They're also human beings, of course, and they behave like human beings. Um, so, you know, they argue, they fight, they get drunk. Um, they do all that stuff that human beings do. They ain't perfect. And all the scenes, they always seem so serious. There were a couple of hints of them having fun. How much, did you see a lot of fun with them? Oh, yeah. Um, but they're not going to do that on camera. I mean, they always are very conscious of what's the impression they're creating. Everything they're doing is with me um, has a purpose and is structured with purpose. So in that first film, for example, every town that I'm in, the people that are in there are there because they have been instructed to be there. Everything that's going on has been orchestrated by the Kogi leadership. Nothing happens that you're not supposed to see. It's in a sense a very totalitarian society. One of the difficulties I have with it. I also find it very difficult to be with people, the, the mamas, who are always right. Uh, and it's worse because it's not just that they they say that they're right. They don't. It turns out they always are. That's pretty hard to deal with in a democratic society where you think your own opinion is worth something. But when you've got people like that, your own opinion isn't worth a light because they actually know what's going on. And they, their powers of thought, they're, they're trained thinkers. They think more swiftly and in more detail than I do. When they explain things to me and tell me things, it quite often takes me, if, if I'm listening to somebody for 15 minutes giving me a teaching, it probably takes me a month to understand what the hell I was being told. They're, they are, they're the first people I ever met who I realized were definitely cleverer than me. <laughs> this was a somewhat depressing experience, but quite startling. Well, humbling, I would guess. Of course. And humility is absolutely not bad at all. Yeah. Yes, yes. So now I have to ask, when the cameras weren't on, were there, did you see them like playing jokes or, or flirting or being romantic or um, anything like not so purposeful? All the things that normal human life does, they were doing. Of course. Yes, yes. But they're careful because it's not just whether the cameras are there, but it's also whether I'm there. What's going on? What, what am I taking away? It's, it, it all has purpose. And this means that when you're dealing with a culture which is really very intellectually self-possessed, um, you have to be very careful in what you think you've taken away from it because you have to try and figure out what's the difference between what I'm being told now and what lies behind it and why it's been structured. Now, one advantage I have is that having been with the society for 30 years, I see the differences between what I'm being told now and what I was being told 30 years ago. And I see how the messages on subtle things change in order to um, for the Kogi to get the most advantage out of the relationship, because that's what they're looking for all the time. 
how do we profit from this dialogue? Just like we would. Now, before we wrap up, if I don't ask, and I'm going to make a segue, if you're talking about people working with people who are really sharp, Terry Jones and working with him. And did you work with the other Monty Pythons? I mean, when I was a kid, it was just such a big thing. I didn't work with them, but the Pythons set me up as an independent producer. And but Terry was the person I worked with. How was that? I mean, because I saw a bit of, um, of um, And God Blue, I think, what was it called? Oh, right. That's the first film we did together. Yeah. And it's serious and it's funny. And he's like looking at the camera. Riley, I'm not sure how to put it. And it seemed like really designed to be a different way of, of presenting things and offbeat. And yeah, uh, what happened? Ter- Terry, people had tried to get Terry to do documentaries. He'd been very um, unhappy at it uh, because he, as a comedian, he always had the shield of the comic character that he was playing mm-hmm. between himself and the audience. There's this. And whereas his understanding of a documentary was that he was standing there naked, he's being him. And he was terrified of that. And so I got him to do it by explaining that you don't do that. What you do as a documentary film presenter in front of the camera, you don't stand there naked. You present a character, a fictional character, who is Terry Jones the narrator, the presenter, and we'll shape that character and that's what you'll play. And that was something he was perfectly happy with. Hence the clothing, was that? Everything. I mean, was he wearing a tuxedo or? or, um... I can't remember them. Dark jacket, I can't remember. But yes, he would take, you know, he'd get quite upset with some of the costume suggestions I would make. No, 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 that's not the character I am. So yeah, he's... And in a way, it's like what I'm talking about with the Kogi. You have to be careful thinking that what you're seeing is the real deal because it's what you're supposed to be seeing. So, I, I mean, I asked mostly about the Kogi because that's what brought me to you. And I'm curious, what fraction of your work and your life and your mission, if, if that's the right way to put it, is Kogi versus everything else? Um, well, the Kogi... Have I really focused on one thing? I mean, it seems like there's so much. The Kogi infect everything else. Um, so, for example, in the first film, one of the things that Kogi said was that we're very worried about the amount of gold you're taking out of the earth. This is extremely damaging. And you have to tell people to stop taking gold out of the earth because it is causing the earth to grow weak. Now, I didn't make anything of that in the film because I thought, I don't understand it. My audience won't understand it. It's not a message that is going to resonate. So let's stick with the bits of the message that are going to resonate, and that's what is in the film. But then over the years, I began to think more and more about what they were talking about and began to understand more and more what they're talking about. And bizarrely, after they made that film and said that, we started taking gold out of the earth on a completely unprecedented scale. So that since we made that film, Humanity has dug more gold out of the earth than it did between the start of the Neolithic and when metal was first discovered and the, uh, the, the, the First World War. We have completely, you know, doubled the amount of gold. 
what has happened? Why has that happened? What's been going on? What role has gold played? And I'm just completing now a book on the power that gold has taken over humanity and the extent to which what's happening in the world right now, including the Ukraine war, is traceable to the effects of having to use gold. In fact, the cogi were making complete sense. So what they've done is to educate me and inform me. My, um, I haven't worked on, I work on other things, but more and more people, after all, people don't really want um, a television director 80 years old, what they want. So I work more and more with the Kogi, and we've now set up this project. To my part of my cynicism is the Kogi kept saying, You don't understand how to take care of the world. We do. You've got to listen to us. And I've been saying for 30 years, I don't believe you prove it. What is it that you know that we don't? What is it that you can do that we can't? What is it that we have to learn? And it's been very difficult to get to a point where they are prepared to actually show us what they can do, what we need to learn, what how they can look after land in ways that we don't even understand. And we've now got to that point. And we've started this project with UNESCO's support and bringing uh, Western ecological scientists together with the Kogimamas on a piece of land which has been selected for the purpose of a three-year pilot project in which the Kogi will restore the land and uh, start to make things happen that we don't know how to make happen using techniques that we don't understand and working with Western scientists who will document everything that takes place so that we actually can see what is the hell they're talking about, what do we need to learn because we haven't got much time left. So I think that that is actually where I need to put all my time and effort now because I think it is so important and we live at such a frightening time. So uh, in America, we have started up just now a pass-through which allows people to make uh, a donation and get tax back to help support the project. And uh, I'm going to give you uh, an address, uh -huh. uh, a URL for that, which I would ask you to put on your well, post, yes. Um, so that people can go there if they want to make a donation. People in the States do make donations already, but they pay tax on it and that's no longer necessary. So they can actually make tax-free donations to support this project. Um, and the first field visit has just been completed. I've just been editing the report. It'll be ready in about a week and I'll send you a copy of it. Great. Now, if you have to go, let me know. I can't help but ask uh, the, what we're learning from them. When you say, what, what can we learn from them? I feel like a lot of, we have to unlearn a lot of things that we, you know, there's some phrase of like, it's what you don't, it's what you, I don't, what you know to be not true. Anyway, I think we know a lot of things that if, aren't so accurate and we have to unlearn. This is absolutely true. Yes. But what we need is to, they actually do things that work and to take care of the land. And these are not the things that we do. And it would be foolish not to learn what it is that we could be doing. Well, I'm also thinking, I'm also thinking of, of the, how do I put it? Like, um, there must be practices besides 
agricultural, if that's how to raise a child, how to um, make relationships work, how to, uh, I, I don't know, because I haven't been there. You've got, the thing is, of course, as far as they're concerned, how can I put this? Um, after producing, um, I was a radio producer for 30 years. After being a radio producer for 30 years, I was asked if I would come and sit in on other people's productions and uh, advise them. And I thought, well, I've never thought about what I do. I'll go and, all right, I'll sit in there. And as I sat in and watched other people's productions, I realized that it all had come so naturally to me after 30 years, what you do and how you do it, that I've discovered there were lots and lots of things I was supposed to be saying, which would probably be useful. It never occurred to me that they needed to be said. And it's the same with the coggy with what they do, that that's not going to occur to them, that things like, how do you bring up a child? Um, how do you take care of human relations? Most of them, are not. it's not going to occur to them that those are things that people need help with or need, need, need to understand. And, of course, within their own culture, there's also the ritual elements, which you really don't want to get involved in because it is specific to a particular culture. And we don't want to imitate that culture. Um, so, for example, at the end of making, before the final section of that Aluna movie, the, the plunge into the water with the women, the women took me on one side the night before and interrogated me about myself and my purposes and what I do. And the main question was that other people, Westerners who've come and worked with them, have made efforts to learn their language, have made efforts to adopt their cultural artifacts and to use them to live their daily lives in a similar way to themselves. And they said, you don't do that. You've never done that. Why? Explain yourself. And I said, the reason is that if I were to become like you, I'd be no use to you. My role here is to be from my culture, not from yours, and not to have even a foot in yours. The difference between us is what makes me useful. And I have knowledge of who I am and why I am who I am. And I stick with that quite happily. And the women said, ah, that's a good answer. We'll work with you. That's um, So we can't be like the coggy, is my point. And we shouldn't try to be. We have to know who we are. And we have to have confidence in our own identities. But that confidence means also knowing about ancestry and our past and the way our ancestors used to behave and being able to draw on that and not thinking we can reinvent ourselves every 20 minutes. That's what we really get wrong, I think. We said after a conversation with them of 15 minutes, months later, you're still disentangled, uh, dis, uh, still learning from it. Yes. Trying to understand, why did they say that? What does that really mean? Yes. I have a feeling this conversation, months from now, I'll be still reviewing it. And I suspect I may come back to you again and, and ask if you'll come back again to share more. I would be honored to. It would be a great delight. I have no idea who your audience is or whether they'd be remotely interested in this, but it's enjoyable talking to you. And as you can hear, 
I do rather like talking. Well, to me, this is tremendously fascinating. People talk about wanting to visit other cultures and it's usually like France or Germany or Japan and they're all industrialized. And it feels like the, the, the difference between to visit one of those cultures is such a, is a, is a yeah, they're different. We, I mean, the Japanese live differently than we do, but it's, this is a whole, on a whole other level. Yeah, but a lot of what they do, we would consider to be abusive. I mean, you know, they raise the children who are being trained to be mummers in the dark for 18 years. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I think we would tend to regard that as child abuse. They have very strong um, gender divisions. Mm-hmm. So the role of men and the role of women are fundamentally different from each other. Uh, and crossover is not easy. And we would not find that kind of life particularly acceptable, I think. So, you know, they're, they're different from us. Yeah. And, yeah, I think one of the reasons to learn is to see yourself differently and to see what do I take for granted yeah. that need not be taken for granted or could be viewed a different way. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things, I, I'll mention this, but I don't want to get onto it because it could take hours. But, I mean, when you're talking about the gold, and I was thinking, what is the, I never thought of what's left in the earth after you take the gold out. And we're not just taking gold out, we're taking whatever we can of make use of, we'll take it. Yeah. So what's going to be left? What's, what's going to be of the earth if everything, let's say we recycle everything off. See, I'm getting into it. But what's going to be left? It's like. It's exactly the way they talk. They say you're taking the equivalent of vitamins and nutrients out of the earth. And the earth needs these things. And yeah, so I mean, right after we hang up, this is like what I know I'm just going to sit back and start thinking about what's earth without once everything that's useful has been taken out of it. What's And this is one of many things, at least for me, that I'm taking away from this. Yeah, we're sterilizing it. And also, we don't know what it ever did. So there, gold plays a role in life itself. Gold isn't quite what we tend to think it is. So gold nuggets, for example, are actually assembled by bacteria. Yeah. Wow. It's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. So the listeners couldn't see my, my face. I think you read it was like, what? Yes. And then it would make total sense, but I just never thought of it. And what is that? What does that mean? Bacteria in little tiny trickles of water carry molecules of gold and assemble them into nuggets. And uh, there is gold in, in living organisms, and it has to be there as far as we know that this is all new discovery. The arrival of gold, you know, gold arrives from elsewhere. It didn't, it, the gold we have landed on Earth after the Earth was formed. You know that. I didn't know. I, I mean, I, so it was in interstellar dust. And If you think about it, when the Earth was forming, gold was being immensely heavy. Any gold that was there sank to the center. So gold that's on the surface got there after the Earth had become a solid planet. So from meteors and... It, it is deposited in a kind of long-lasting hailstorm of precious metals 
called the late heavy bombardment. So the Earth is actually bombarded with the materials that you're speaking about, of which gold is an important one. And it's just after that happens that life begins on Earth. Now, that may just be a coincidence. What do you think? <laughs> now I have to have you back. <laughs> Whether it's about just gold or just Kogi or just how these learnings, ponderings have infiltrated and affected your views of the earth and your behaviors and your relationships and things like that. I'm not yet 80. <laughs> well, I'm 80 next year. So here we go. Oh, happy birthday. Not yet. Well, let's leave it as a, as a cliffhanger for next time. I'm very happy. Thank you very much indeed to giving me this much is there actually, is there anything that I didn't bring up or worth saying before closing or any message directly to listeners? Um, only, only one thing, which is appropriate to a podcast, which is a quote from the Aluna film where Mama is trying to explain things. To listen is to think. Alan Herrera, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.